Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Katherine Shen. A quick content warning to our listeners. Today, we are talking about suicide. September is Suicide Prevention Month. The United States saw nearly 50,000 deaths by suicide in 2022, and that number continues to be on the rise. CDC Chief Medical Officer Deborah Auri says this increase is troubling and requires immediate action. Research from the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention shows that talking about suicide could actually prevent suicide deaths. But like all challenging conversations, how we talk about it is key. So if you're struggling, the the Suicide Crisis Lifeline is available online and on the phone 24 hours a day. You can log on to 988lifeline.org or dial 988. And here with us now to help us navigate through some of these conversations is Aneri Patani, who is a senior correspondent for KFF Health News. Thank you so much, Anari, for being with us today. Thanks for having me. And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Aneri, you've been covering mental health and suicide as part of your beat. Can you tell us how did you get started on this and how has that experience changed over the years? So I initially got interested in this beat actually from a personal experience. When I was in college, I was studying journalism. And at the same time, I had a close friend who uh, was dealing with suicidal thoughts for the first time. And I was someone that they confided in. And so I was sort of trying to help them navigate this and and figuring out for the first time, how do I, uh, who do I tell, where do we go for resources? If there's, you know, barriers with insurance or wait times or stigma, how do we navigate those? And having that personal experience really made me realize, you know, I hadn't heard a lot about this. I, no one had talked to me about it. And there are all these systemic barriers. How do I um, I would like to learn more, and hopefully I would like to share that with others. And so that's when I started covering the issue. Um, and I didn't have a lot of training at the time, but as that as time has gone on, I've uh, learned how to cover this better. And I think other uh, people who write and talk about this are, are learning the same. It echoes my own experience as well. And I feel like we don't really get a ton of training as journalists in terms of how to cover uh, sensitive topics and, and traumatic experiences. Can you talk about, you know, how did that start for you? Like, how did you figure out what language to use, how to have the conversation? Or was it sort of trial by error? Absolutely trial by error. A lot a lot of my uh, moments of learning came from I interviewed someone in a particular way or I wrote an article and then someone called me or someone emailed me and said, hey, you know, there are actual guidelines about how you should report on suicide and you're not following them. 
And I said, I didn't know. Um, and, and a lot of people, you know, took the time to educate me. And even when it came to interviewing folks, I, I made mistakes and sort of interviewing people in a way that left them in this very dark space, reliving things that were very difficult for them. And I didn't know about how to kind of uh, bring them back to a safe place at the end of our interview. So I wasn't being harmful. And I had to learn when they said to me, you know, this was a bad experience for me, I wouldn't talk to you again. And I had to really take that and reflect and and seek out resources that would teach me how to handle that better. So I wasn't having that negative effect on the people that whose stories I wanted to tell and whom I wanted to help. And so because you had to sort of seek out those resources yourself or to have your own sources come back to you and say, hey, you know, this is not really how it should be done. How have the guidelines and awareness around guidelines changed over time? You know, you've been doing this for a while. I think we're seeing more content warnings or resource links around coverage of suicide. Why do you think this has become a standard part of suicide coverage? I think we there's more awareness because a lot of um, a lot of sources are doing what my sources did. You know, folks are are telling reporters uh, when they cover this topic, and not just waiting until they publish, but often now when I interview a researcher or a doctor about a story, they will tell me at the interview whether I ask them or not. Hey, did you know there are these guidelines? You know, take a look at reportingonsuicide.org. It's two pages. Like, just go through it before you publish your article or before you publish your, um, you know, TV or radio piece. And so I think there there is increasing awareness. And some of the things that you mentioned, you know, the uh, helpline or the content warnings, are you know some of the easiest things we can do. They are very concrete. You put it at the top of your um, article on your website and and it's sort of a checkbox that's easy to meet. I think there are other parts of the reporting guidelines that are a little harder to meet and that we still have some work to do on. And so on top of providing resources for for readers and listeners and your audience, I think a lot of the guidelines we see now around reporting on suicide and talking about suicide in the media has also been put in, put in place to avoid the suicide contagion effect. Can you explain what this is and how prevalent it can be after a suicide? Yeah, so suicide contagion, this phenomenon is the whole reason that it's so important that we learn to talk about and communicate and write about suicide in a responsible way. Contagion is the idea that when someone is exposed to certain types of media coverage uh, about suicide or a suicide death, there is then an increase in the suicide rate of the communities exposed to that reporting. And this is not to say that, you know, someone who has never thought of suicide would suddenly watch a, a TV piece or, or read a uh, news article and become suicidal out of nowhere. But rather what this suggests is that we know there are always some people in our community, in our population, who are thinking of suicide, but maybe haven't acted on it yet, who are dealing with depression, who are feeling hopelessness. And when there are reports in certain ways about suicide, uh, and they are exposed to them, it makes them that much more likely to act on that thought. And for our listeners, if you are struggling, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is available online and on the phone 24 hours a day. You can log on to 988lifeline.org or dial 988. So an area with what you were just talking about too, you know, how do you navigate reporting on the death of a famous person that died about suicide? Because 
you know, we we consume news, we consume media, but when someone famous who dies this way, that has a larger impact, I think, right? Absolutely. There are a bunch of research studies that have been done over decades showing that when there are celebrity suicide deaths and they are covered by the media, uh, there's an increase in, in suicide rates in the communities exposed to that reporting. One of the biggest things that we've learned not to do is include the specific way that the celebrity uh, killed themselves. And that's because the studies actually show when there are detailed reports about the manner used, uh, suicides not only go up overall, they go up by that specific method, which means people are reading the news story and sort of seeing this plan laid out for them and using that themselves. So when we report on a celebrity death, uh, we can we don't need to give those details. Uh, that doesn't it's not germane to the story necessarily, and it can be really harmful. And relating to what you said too, has that changed over the years as you continue to cover this? I know, uh, you know, in addition to not reporting on the nature and method of suicide, uh, the Washington Post have also said that you want to make sure that you're not glorifying the way that they died. And this is a way of not providing a reason uh, for the suicide. Is that something that you're seeing more today? I think I'm definitely seeing more places be cognizant of not including the method. Uh, and so we are seeing, you know, more uh, reporting that says so-and-so died and, and then just talking about their life and not talking about the manner and the method and the details of that moment. Um, in terms of the second piece you mentioned, the not, you know, glamorizing or not providing a reason, I think we're getting better at that, but it, it is still uh, there because generally we want to provide a simple narrative. We as human beings like being able to say, you know, X thing happened and therefore there was Y reaction. And it's sort of, you know, this person went through a breakup or was laid off and the next thing you know, they they died. And we want to draw these very simple connections that research tells us aren't true, but it's it's very hard to resist and instead say suicide is caused by a number of factors and truthfully, we never know because the person who could tell us is no longer there. And so, of course, we here at the media, you know, we we do these stories, we we tell these stories for our audience, for the public. So how do you report on suicide through the lens of public health? Yeah, so what I I often use an analogy to describe this, uh, where I think suicide is important to cover, as, but as you said, as a public health issue versus a an event or an incident. And so if we think about car crashes. Let's say there's a particular intersection where there's a, there's a car crash one day. We may or may not write about that depending on how large the accident is. But if there are five crashes in you know five or six days in that spot, we probably would write about it. But we wouldn't say each individual crash, here are all the details. We would say, what's wrong with this intersection? Uh, was it built poorly? Do we need to install a new traffic light or a stop sign or a speed bump? And so we'd kind of take this systematic lens and zoom out and say, what could our society do to make this place safer? And I think uh, when I approach reporting about suicide, I try to do it from a similar lens where suicide is a big public health issue in our country. Prior to COVID, it was in the top 10 leading causes of death. So we do need to be reporting about it and talking about it. But how do I, instead of focusing on any one suicide death and getting into all the details of that, 
how do I zoom out and talk about what we could be doing societally to uh, address and improve this topic? And that's really something that we want to talk about here, too, because the flip side of this is we know that talking about suicide prevents suicide. So so you don't want to avoid talking about it, as you just said. But it also seems like a really tricky middle ground when it comes to reporting with care. So it seems like a case by case case basis. So so how do you sort of find that balance when when you find yourself in that tricky middle ground? Absolutely. It's it's not easy. We don't want to not talk about it at all, but we don't want to talk about it so much or focus on any one particular death. Um, so one of the biggest things I say in, in reporting on suicide is all of these all of these decisions are difficult, and so I wouldn't make them generally by myself. I think it's helpful to have other folks that you trust that understand the guidelines, that understand the sensitivities to talk about um, with when you're making these decisions, when I'm making these decisions. Um, so that's one thing that I generally, I rely on others to, you know, let's debate whether this, what are the pros and cons to reporting on this and kind of come to a consensus. And so, of course, we've been focusing a lot about how we report on when when something like this happens. and. But this isn't limited to just news media. When we're thinking about movies or TV shows where suicide is a part of the story, you know, from where you're standing, especially from your experience too, you know, how should creators present these narratives delicately and, and sensitively? I think a lot of the same uh, guidelines can apply when it when it's you know fictional TV or or shows or movies where showing you know detailed method is can be harmful it does the same thing it lays out a plan for someone that they can follow oversimplifying it to one cause um glorifying it and making it seem like you know this person uh after they died was so beloved and everyone thought well of them because sometimes people who are dealing with suicidal thoughts feel like a burden to others and when we make suicide and the aftermath of suicide seem like now everyone you know, gets it and misses them and thinks well of them, we make that look attractive to the person who in their life doesn't feel that way. And then one of the biggest things is shows can show people getting treatment and and recovering and feeling hopeful. It can show that other piece to this issue, which is true and prominent. There are so many people who deal with thoughts of suicide who don't attempt and who go on to lead, you know, full and complete lives. And so we need to be able to show that part of it as well. And so this is so many complicated layers. It's not this black and white. It's not this simple. And and from your your own experiences, wh- I think one of the reasons why we don't really talk about this is because there's so much stigma. And why do you think there is so much stigma surrounding suicide? And are you still seeing that when you're doing your reporting or when you're having your conversations uh, with your with your sources? I think the stigma comes from we've long viewed suicide societally as a crime. It used to be a crime in a lot of the world, it still is, as a sin from a religious perspective, and generally as a weakness. You know, someone just couldn't cope and so they did this. And it's only now that we're starting to really come around and understand this is part of mental health. This is, you know, part of mental illness. This is a public health issue. It is not a personal moral failing. And so when we take it out from, you know, it's on this person and they should have fixed it themselves to looking at 
why is our society in a way where suicide rates are so high? If it's happening across the board, are we really going to say that it's every person's individual fault? No, we need to understand that there's something we can do society-wide to, to address this. So I think I am, you know, as I talk to sources over time, seeing that stigma ease, seeing people address this as a health issue and not as an individual fault or failing, but it's not across the board. And I think when families experience uh, someone losing someone to suicide and I talk to them, there is sometimes still a lot of hesitance to bring that up and, and uh, say publicly how the individual uh, died, that it was a suicide, because they worry that their loved one will be judged that way. And as you continue to navigate through this and have these conversations, I think it's really important, too, to think about how journalists should be caring for themselves when reporting on mental illness and suicide, because it does get very personal, right? Like you're having these very intimate conversations with them. So is that something that you've learned to do or still learning to do? You know, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's definitely something I've had to learn uh, over time. I think a lot of folks, myself included, report on this topic because it is personal in some way and we are very passionate about it. And so I want to continue doing these stories, but in order to be able to to do them and, and take on you know these, these heavy, often difficult topics, I have to give myself breaks occasionally. So sometimes that looks like if I've interviewed someone with a particularly you know, difficult story, I need to go take a walk after that interview and just sort of clear my mind or, or do something physical for me because exercise or things like that help me get out of my mind and just like focus on my body for a bit. It also means sometimes a break looks like when I've done a, a story on suicide, uh, doing my next story on something else so that I, I have a break between topics and I'm not solely focused on that all the time because it can get to be a lot. Right. Break uh, balance sounds like is something that we should all be thinking about and take lots of walks. And I do want to ask one more question, you know, with your with your extensive experience with this, and especially since you shared earlier that you were kind of sort of thrown into this from a personal experience going into your professional life. Is there something about covering covering this particular subject and, and talking with your sources? Was, was there anything that surprised you? Yes, I think the thing that has surprised me and that I think surprises people when I tell them about my job is that it is more inspiring than you would think. So often when I tell people, you know, if I'm at, at a party and I say I'm a journalist, they ask, what do you cover? I say I cover mental health, suicide and addiction. And it sort of brings the conversation to a searing halt because people don't know what to say and they feel like that's so depressing. And how does she write about that? Um, but and, and as we just talked about, parts of it are very hard. But a lot of the people I talk to have taken something very painful in their life and either, you know, the loss of someone or their own suicide attempt or mental health concerns. And they have found a way to get through that. They've often found coping and things that work for them. And they are now so focused on helping other people and channeling their pain into something positive for, for society. And it is inspiring to talk to them. And it's amazing to see that kind of resilience and learn from them all the time. So I think that surprised me. And it continues to surprise me, even though I've been doing this work for a while now. I'm smiling. And I'm really glad that that is sort of 
your experience and and that it can bring hope to to some people. And we hope this conversation will help them as well. You've been listening to Aneri Patani, who's the senior correspondent for KFF Health News. Aneri, thank you so much for joining us today and having this very important conversation. Thank you. And if you're struggling, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is available online and on the phone 24 hours a day. You can log on to 988lifeline.org or dial 988. Coming up, we'll hear from a survivor of suicide loss and learn how communities can better respond to a suicide death. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Just a note that we will be discussing themes of suicide, and this show may not be appropriate for young listeners. And if you're struggling, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is available online and on the phone 24 hours a day. You can go online to 988lifeline.org or dial 988. When a suicide happens in a community such as a school or a workplace, it can impact everyone in it. People can be at a loss for words or accidentally say the wrong thing. Joining us now is Anne Daigle. She's the president and co-founder of the Brian Daigle Foundation and tri-chair of the Connecticut Suicide Advisory Board. Thank you so much, Anne, for being with us this morning. Thank you for having me. And you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Anne, you've been listening to our conversation with Anari from KFF Health News earlier. Is there anything that she said that jumped out to you that you would like to respond? I love the fact that she addressed suicide as a public health issue. Um, she did a great job as far as explaining how the media should handle it. And I learned from her through her her interview. So I appreciate all the words she said. She said that talking about suicide prevents suicide. We know that to be true. 
um, that people can go on to live their life, um, even though they've had thoughts of suicide or attempted suicide, um, they can live a beautiful, full life. And can we start, too, with your story as someone who is a survivor of suicide loss? Yes. Yes. So I lost my son, Brian, in 2011. Uh, He was 19. He was a college student away at Castleton University in Vermont. And uh, we knew that Brian had struggled with some anxiety and depression, um, and particularly in high school. He would have a panic attack. Um, get dismissed from school, and then come home and go to sleep for a while because he was exhausted from it. But then he'd wake up and he'd rally and he'd be at a basketball game or a sporting event or go hang out with his friends. And he'd seem to do fine after that. Um, So we thought we were doing all the right things. Uh, He had a therapist. He went on medication. And it was being managed, so we thought. And how did you navigate telling people about the nature of his death? And and thank you so much for sharing that with us. You know, were you open about it being a suicide or, you know, what was going through your mind? We were open from day one. I mean, it was very clear that he took his own life and all his friends knew uh, he was away at college and um, a lot of his friends from his hometown, East Lyme, went to college up there or used to visit him all the time. So the kids were up there. And so they all knew. So there was no reason why we should hide it. We weren't, I don't know if we were ashamed. I don't really remember what we were feeling except shock. Uh, So we were clear. And my husband was very clear as far as sharing it from day one. Um, Initially, I had trouble saying that word. When I was in a support group, our people asked me how he died. I struggled with saying that word suicide. So I understand where people come from when I talk to them now and they're unable to say how their person died. I only hope that eventually they can come to be honest with themselves and be honest with people who love them and be truthful because I can't imagine keeping that secret and keeping that burden of how your loved one died. That's a heavy burden to carry um, alone. Right. And I think the act of letting go and the act of, you know, forgiving yourself or letting go of your own burden is it takes a lot of time. And we are still learning about how to talk about this topic. And and there's there was a lot of stigma at the time around suicide. And I think there still is as we continue to have these ongoing conversations. Can you talk about the challenges that you encountered when he died and how did your friends and family respond to it? It was interesting. Um, People who I hadn't seen in years stopped by my house and came to see me. And they were asking very, now that I look back, um, very invasive questions that they really had no right to ask. You know, did you know that he was suicidal? Did you know he was struggling so much? And so immediately that puts guilt on you that, no, I didn't know or I should have known. And so you feel guilty. and, And as survivors of suicide loss, We feel so much guilt, shame, and blame around the loss of a loved one to suicide. Uh, Eventually, where I hope and I was able to work through that shame and guilt, but people don't understand it's a lack of understanding on their part as to why they ask these questions. 
So as I started to come out of my grief and fog and, and the, all of the issues in the early years surrounding Brian's death, I was able to let some of that go. But I was also able to learn to educate people on suicide and death and how we talk about it. And when you're helping people navigate, I think you're also learning how to navigate those conversations yourself. And and how do you help them go through with, you know, this is not the question to ask or that is being very invasive, as you mentioned. And, and uh, how do you navigate that guilt that many survivors of suicide loss do go through in terms of, you know, blaming themselves and, and carrying that very heavy burden? That's challenging to help them understand that they're not guilty, that they weren't to blame, that it was not their fault in uh, their loved one's death. But for the most part, I just listen. And I know that and understand that it's part of the process because I know I went through it myself. So I just let them share what they need to share and, and go through the process. And eventually... The majority of people, some people don't. It takes much longer than others. Some people, um, they will work through that and understand that it wasn't my fault. I did everything possible given the information I had at the time with my loved one. So they're able to let go of that eventually. And that's when the true healing can begin is when they work through all of those, you know, the woulda, coulda, shouldas, the self-blame and going through that. But also we know that once they let go of that, sometimes it will resurface again. You know, I know just in my own personal opinion, I'm able to let go of it. But every once in a while, especially surrounding the death date, that guilt and shame sometimes resurfaces. And it doesn't stay as long. It doesn't go as deep into my heart, but I can let let it go. And it feels like this is a very long process. It takes time to let go if you can and and listen to people as we talk about this. And as we were talking about in the earlier conversation, we touched on the idea that in order to prevent suicide, you know, we have to talk about it. But as you just share with us now, that it can be hard and traumatizing and re-traumatizing. So do you have a way to go about having these conversations? Do you brace yourself? Do you help people brace themselves? You know, what does that look like? I think what can help people to have these conversations, you need to have it over and over again. Uh, There's power in telling your story. So for instance, in a support group setting, uh, we have a support group for survivors of suicide loss. And at each meeting, which we meet twice a month, we go around in a circle. We say our name, we say who we lost and how long it has been. So we just go through and remind ourselves of our story and tell it. And some people will share the same same story of their loss, how they died, the, their feelings over and over again. And eventually, once they hear themselves talking and hearing that story out loud, they're able to work through a lot of it, and then they're able to let it go. And so you mentioned support group, and of course, the you know having a community is really important when it comes to something like this. So. What does it look like in scale? So we mentioned earlier when a member of a workplace or a school or a large community dies by suicide, how should leaders of these organizations present the news? You know, as we talked about earlier, like wording, language is really important. So is there is there a good way for them to present this news? 
They do. They want to just say the, how they died. They just want to say they died. They don't have to say how they died. Of course, we never, ever use the means in which they died. Um, but just share that they died. And then hold space for the people who are grieving. Have a, a circle of healing and gather people if they want to talk. Bring in grief counselors if, if they can do that. And g give the employees space and give the students space and let them do what they need to do for their grief and honor that grief. In the world of suicide prevention, our most powerful tool now is postvention. So postvention is what we do in the event of a, a loss to suicide in a community, in a business or a school. And we have certain protocols in place in how we handle that. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned postvention uh, because I do want to transition to talking about that as well. You know. With suicide deaths on the rise, what do you do if someone shares that they're struggling with suicidal thoughts? If someone comes to you and shares that information, how do you navigate that conversation? Again, listening. You want to listen to them and you want to validate their feelings. Now, the same with grief and loss. We can't fix them. We can't treat them. We certainly cannot make them any better. And we want to have those same thoughts when we're talking to somebody who is suicidal or thinking about hurting themselves, that I understand that you're struggling. I hear you. I want to help you. So you ask them if they are suicidal. You have to ask that important question. And then you refer them to get some help. You persuade them that they are absolutely, um, there is help out there for them and that you will walk them through this, help them get the help they need and then refer them to get the help they need. So it's most important to just validate their feelings and not pretend that, it, you know, well, well, maybe if you do this, that will happen, or try and fix them or give them suggestions or tell them what they should do. We can't tell anybody what to do because we don't know what they're feeling, but we can certainly listen to them and say, okay, I, I hear you and I want to help you. And for our listeners, another reminder here that if you are struggling, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is available online and on the phone 24 hours a day. You can log on to 988lifeline.org or dial 988. So Anne, with what you were just saying too, I think there's a lot of listening, there's a lot of uh, hearing and, and being open to these conversations. And with these prevention trainings, do you think this is something that everyone should get the basic knowledge of how to handle these conversations? You know, how can people learn more if they want to sort of start having this practice? I think everybody can get this information. I think everybody should, especially in the environment today. We are in a mental health crisis. So when you think about years ago when heart disease was prevalent, everybody learned CPR. I mean, that's required for teachers, for coaches, for, for organizations to have a basic CPR training. Everyone can have a basic suicide prevention training. There are a number of programs out there. I'm actually going up today to Wheaton College to teach a program to uh, one of their athletic teams up there about suicide prevention. So it is very easy to do. You don't have to be a doctor. You don't have to be a professional or licensed therapist. You just have to have the skill set. And we know that our young people nowadays are having this conversation already with their peers because a lot of kids are suicidal. A lot of people are suicidal. So if we can give them the tools 
to better equip them when they're having this conversation to have the right language to use, to have the right skills to give them, and to have the resources to help them get their friend or whomever they're talking to the help they need. And as we are coming to an end here, I still want to ask to, you know, as we're having these very important ongoing conversations, is there something else that you would like to share with our listeners, you know, something that you don't really hear people talk about or not presented in the media that you would like to share? I think I just would like people to know that talking about suicide can prevent suicide. Don't be afraid of it. It's a very scary topic, I know, but please try and find more information out about it. Well, thank you so much for being on and helping us navigate through this very scary and uncomfortable conversation. And I hope this will help people become more comfortable with it. You've been listening to Ann Daigle. She's the president and co-founder of the Brian Daigle Foundation and tri-chair of the Connecticut Suicide Advisory Board. Thank you so much, Ann, for sharing your experiences with us today. Thank you for having me. And for our listeners, if you are struggling, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is available online and on the phone 24 hours a day. You can go online to 988lifeline.org or dial 988. You can also contact 211. It's Suicide Prevention Month, and coming up next, we will hear from Dr. Lane Taylor. She's the medical director for the Village for Families and Children, and we'll hear how the state is addressing mental health emergencies in children. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Today, we are talking about suicide, and this show may not be appropriate for young listeners. And if you are struggling, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is available online and on the phone 24 hours a day. You can log on to 988lifeline.org or dial 988. Most people with thoughts of suicide are referred to the emergency room. During the height of the pandemic, children coming to the emergency room for mental health conditions increased substantially. Joining us now is Dr. Lane Taylor. She's the medical director for the Village for Families and Children, an urgent crisis center in Hartford for children and adolescents ages 18 and under. Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us on Where We Live today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great honor to be on with this amazing amazing list of guests. Well, thank you for being with us to have this very important conversations. And I want to start by asking you, can you describe the need for these types of centers, especially now? Yeah, this is a, a really um, important and um, innovative way of being able to increase access for youth um, to mental health services. So um, in Last year, the legislature realized that there was this very issue that you mentioned about the number of kids showing up into emergency departments and that there needed to be something done because kids were waiting in hallways and in emergency departments for weeks on end. Um, and they just weren't getting the care that they needed, no matter how hard these emergency departments were working to serve them. So what, what was created was an urgent crisis center. And these are facilities where you can walk in, you can get a full multidisciplinary evaluation 
and be able to get support during your immediate crisis. This is so needed because if anyone has ever had to go to the emergency department for any reason, you know that you could be waiting before being seen for many hours. The environment is certainly not a place that is healing for mental health purposes, right? It's set up for, for you to for people to manage acute medical issues. And emotional ones require different types of environments, more warm and welcoming. And so these urgent crisis centers were created in order to meet those needs, help families and youth feel uh, like this is a safe place to be able to talk about very difficult things and come out feeling supported in the crises. And so usually when a child is struggling with suicidal thoughts, they are referred to the emergency room. Do you have children showing up with suicidality or or ideations at these crisis centers? Absolutely. I think that's one of the top reasons uh, youth will arrive to our urgent crisis centers um, is they're experiencing um, worsening depression, thoughts about wanting to die, or explicitly having thoughts or plans on how to die. And so they come to the urgent crisis centers in order to be able to talk about those those thoughts, those concerns that they have and their emotions, and be able to get some support and tools so that they can walk out feeling more secure and the ability to move forward with their, their daily lives. And I think for a lot of people, this is a very new or uncomfortable situation that they find themselves being in. So what can children and families expect uh, when they get to these centers? Yeah, I mean, one thing I just want to highlight before talking about that piece is that oftentimes things like depression and and suicide for youth and families, it seems like it's sudden, right? It feels like I didn't understand or realize this was going on. And so these crises can come on and, and feel very sudden, even though they've been building over time for the most part. And so when they walk into our urgent crisis centers, a lot of times families are in pretty considerable distress. So when they walk in there, we have a warm, welcoming environment. We have for our younger kids, places to be able to play um, as their uh, registration and waiting is happening. They immediately get seen by a triage nurse, which helps determine, are they at the right place? Or do they in fact need to be supported in an emergency department because of more acute concerns, such as actually having an attempt that requires medical attention. And after that, they get to see a nurse for a nursing evaluation, a clinician to do a psychosocial evaluation where they discuss more of what's going on in the current crisis. And they also see a psychiatric provider to round out uh, the more holistic approach that we have. The aim is to be able to have people um, get assistance, be seen in a warm uh, environment with comfy chairs, food, um, and, and peaceful environment within uh, four hours so that they can be able to walk home, go return home with uh, tools and feel much more secure in in knowing how to manage how they're feeling. And as a reporter, I've done countless stories related to the need of youth mental health support, and especially uh, during the pandemic lockdown and, and afterwards. But are parents also able to get some support while their kids are getting support as well? Absolutely. In addition to supporting the child and coming up with tools for managing their own feelings, you know, um, Ms. Zagel spoke very well about how this impacts the entire environment that the child's in, the parents, et cetera. And, um, and so if parents, siblings, whomever comes in, walks out with a plan for them as well, what can I do? 
what can I feel empowered to do to support my youth? So you just describe how friendly these centers can be, and especially for for families and children who this is a very new thing for them. You know, how many children can be accommodated at once, or do you, are you seeing a rise in numbers for accommodation? Yeah, at present we're seeing between two and three kids per shift. So the facilities are open from 7 a.m. or the one in Hartford, actually, each facility has a different set of hours and there are four in the state, one located in the New London area uh, with Family and Children Agency of Southeastern Connecticut in the Waterbury area uh, with Wellmore and Yale New Haven Hospital. Um, and then Hartford for the village, our um, our location is at 1680 Albany Avenue. We're open from seven in the morning until 11 at night. We take our last child at 8 p.m. so that we can make sure we provide enough time to, to support them uh, before we close. Um, and so the, um, I apologize, can you repeat your question? <laughs> no, I, I was just gonna, I was just asking, you know, is, uh, have the number been, been rising? And yes. is there a system in place that you can refer children to get more care after being at the center? Absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, yes, actually, we've been steadily increasing. So about two to three per shift um, that we've been seeing. So about anywhere between four to six a day. But we're certainly at the village uh, set up to be able to, to receive many, many kids, up to 20 per day in order to meet the needs. So we are, are steadily increasing. We look forward to further increase um, in, the, in uh, being able to support crises. After a kid receives support for their immediate crisis, we do always look into what are the next steps for the kids. So we're addressing the day or the night that they come in, but how do we support them long-term? So each kid gets an evaluation. What are their current uh, supports that they have? Do they have a therapist? Do they have a psychiatrist? Are they in a program? We make sure that we connect with those programs in order to make sure that they're aware of their arrival to the urgent crisis center. And then if there are additional services that we would recommend, we provide referrals and we provide what's called aftercare. So after the family leaves, we're not just setting up referrals or making recommendations for the next level of care, but we're calling, we're following up with the family in order to make sure that they connect to that care. And if there are any barriers, we support the family in overcoming whatever those barriers are. The aftercare does not just include clinical because kids need to be kids. And so we'll also think about what are some non-clinical services that might be helpful, mentoring programs, sports programs, you know, aftercare, after-school programs, those things like, things like that. We also think about the needs of the family and if there are some basic needs that, are, um, that the family might need. They need support with transportation to make it to the appointments. Are there issues with being able to pay bills? All of those things are aspects that are reviewed and uh, thought about when we're serving our youth and families. So we've got a couple more minutes here, but I want to ask too, you know, we talked about stigma earlier about suicide. You know, how do you, how do you navigate conversations with children and family and parents who do come in with, with those, with that kind of barriers in terms of conversation about suicide and mental health? And, and is that stigmatized at the hospital setting? You know, I think it's unintentionally stigmatized at the hospital setting. I think that uh, the medical environment makes it feel um, difficult to be able to be open and talk about how youth are feeling. I think one of the things that's so common is that kids don't get heard really by adults, right? 
it is so common that kids are told what to do because they're kids. But in addition, kids need to be heard. Kids need an adult to just say, hey, how are you doing? How are you feeling? What's going on with you? And when a kid is in crisis, sometimes that doesn't happen either, right? Is that the parents or the adults in the, in, uh, involved want to just fix the crisis. Um, and so even in those situations, sometimes kids aren't heard. And I think one of the pieces that the urgent crisis centers are doing, a lot of clinical supports that are out there inclusive of a, a mobile crisis, which will come to your home um, and provide crisis support services by calling 211, is that there are adults who are there to really listen and understand what's going on with the kid and hear what the child actually needs. And I think the theme for today's conversation is to listen to each other, especially to our children. It sounds like uh, thank you so much, Dr. Lane Taylor, for being with us this morning. Thank you. And for our listeners, if you're struggling, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is available online and on the phone 24 hours a day. You can go online to 988lifeline.org or dial 988 you can also give 211 a call if you're struggling. I'm Katherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.